Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. All right. We're official. Well, welcome to week two. I want to welcome everybody here at the West Campus. You know you're at the West Campus, but what you may not know is that uh, there are people watching this, streaming this live. This is the first semester we've been able to stream live uh, here at this facility. So as I'm teaching, there are people watching. And so I want to give a shout out to everyone who's streaming online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also to remind you that because we are streaming, um, try not to walk back and forth. Last week, there were a couple of guys who walked back and forth in front of the camera, which is fine. But if you need to get coffee, go, go this way, okay? Uh, and I also want to welcome all the ladies who are watching. Uh, I know this is a band of brothers, but we have a, a growing number of women who are watching uh, these lessons. So I want to welcome them, and we know you're out there. And I'm not going to tell Shelly Davis, the uh, Minister of Women, that you're watching our lesson and maybe not hers, but uh, we're, we're, we're glad you're a, you're a part of this. Well, we're going to jump into it this morning. We're going to be in chapter 1, so if you've got your Bibles, open up, up to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we're going to start back in verse 3. We covered some of this last week, but we're going to go there again, so let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for this morning and for the guys who show up early and brew the coffee and cook the food and get everything ready, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for them. And Father, I'm, I'm grateful for each guy that's come this morning, and I pray that their effort to get up and come here will be rewarded uh, by what you have to say to them. And would you use me? Would you speak through me? And Father, would you help each one of us to understand the message that's contained in 1 Peter for us? And thank you for, through your Holy Spirit, guiding Peter to write these words 21 centuries ago so that we might benefit from them today. And Lord, we thank, thank you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, this week uh, chap is ch week two, and we're still in chapter one. We're going to uh, be in chapter one over the next few weeks, but we're going to pick up where we left off. And, and this, this week, I've titled this A Traveler's Guide for Christian Pilgrims, because as we saw last week, that's exactly what we are, according to chapter 2, verse 11, and the opening two verses of chapter 1. We're aliens, we're strangers, we're exiles here on this earth. So if you're wondering what does a book written 21 centuries ago by Peter have to do with us, well, it has everything to do with us. And I hope by now you've even seen that in First Peter, uh, there are so many applications for you and I living in the culture in which we're living right now. Um, Things have really not changed. Yes, there's more technology. Yes, we have um, a lot more ways to sin. Uh, we, we have a lot more things happening in our culture that we find to be egregious and difficult, but it's really not much different than it was in the first century when Peter penned this letter. So he's writing to people who, who he refers to as aliens and strangers, and they're living in the here and now. You're going to hear that phrase over and over again because I, I think there's this incredible juxtaposition in 1 Peter between the here and now, the time in which you and I live, the time in which they lived, and the hereafter. Um, it's, it's an eschatological letter in the sense that that just simply means it has to do with the end times. He's writing to people living in a certain place at a certain time, 
and yet he keeps reminding them, as we'll see in the verses today, about the future. Yes, you're living in the here and now, but you've got to remember that you've got a better home, a better place for you out ahead. This better place is reserved for you, we're going to see in the verses today. It's reserved for you by God, and he's going to bring it to you. And the way you can live in the here and now is to never forget the hereafter. There is a hereafter. There is a future. There is an eternity awaiting every single human being. It's either for good or for bad, but there is an eternity. We're eternal creatures. We're meant to last forever. So that's really the premise here. We, just like those first century Christians living in those five provinces in northern Asia Minor, were temporary residents. They, they didn't belong where they lived anymore. They may have been born there. They may have had relatives there, a deep, rich heritage there. But he's trying to get them to understand that this is no longer your home. As soon as you stepped into the kingdom, as soon as you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you became an alien and a stranger to all those around you, to the culture in which you live. You're now made right with God. You've been justified. You've been made not an enemy of God, but a friend of God. So you're no longer alienated from him, but you are alienated from the culture. And that's exactly what we experience even here and now in 21st century America. You know, we, we looked at all those different translations and how they, they took the words aliens and strangers and they translated them differently depending on when the particular translation came out. And we know that the King James uses the word pilgrims uh, because it came out in the 1600s and there were pilgrims in the 1600s and they all knew what a pilgrim was. It was a wanderer, a traveler. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This is the King James Version. Again, came out in the 1600s. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So he's, he's calling them out and he's letting them understand the difference in their lives because of Jesus Christ. And he refers to them as pilgrims. Here's what that word literally means. A traveler or wanderer, especially in a foreign place. All of us are old enough to know who the pilgrims were. And the pilgrims left their home country and they came to this country in order to start a new life. But they found themselves to be what? Wanderers, travelers in a land where they didn't belong. And some of their initial encounters here were not necessarily good. They were basically invading land that belonged to somebody else. And that's why this word is used in the King James, that that's exactly us. We are here in this land that used to be our home, but it's no longer our home. So how do we live here? That's really the whole gist of 1 Peter. How do you live as children of the kingdom right here, right now? And, and I think we'd all admit it's, it's not easy, right? It's not fun at times. It can be difficult. But it can also be somewhat easy to become complacent and compromise and become part of this culture without even realizing you're doing it. And so here's Peter reminding them, Hey, guys, don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you belong. And don't forget where you're going to live when all of this becomes finally fulfilled. And that's why this message is applicable to us. So let's look at verse 3. We covered these last week. 
kind of in a, in a rush, but I want to dig deeper into him because this is the opening of his letter. He's done his salutation in the first two verses, and now he says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, he has predetermined, he has elected, chosen, that we might be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's reminding these people that God, who foreordained them, the Spirit who set them apart, made them holy, and then Jesus Christ who shed his blood that he might cleanse them, has done it that they might be born again to what? A living hope. A living hope. It's all been caused by God. It's all the plan of God. None of this is catching God off guard. And, and here's the deal. We know going into this book that the people to whom Peter's writing are suffering. They're suffering because they're Christians. They're suffering because they're Christians because they're living in a non-Christian culture, much like you and I. And that culture doesn't like what they believe, doesn't believe what they believe. And they're being ostracized. They're being criticized. They're being polarized by the culture that they used to be a part of. And that should be the experience of every Christian. And so he's trying to remind them of who you are and where your hope should lie. In the midst of what? Suffering, trials, persecution, and difficulties of all kind. And he he mentions this idea of a living hope. What's a living hope? What's the difference between a living hope and just hope? Well, I think Peter is very specific in his word word usage because he's trying to drive home a point. Your hope should be alive. It should be active. It's not a dead hope. It's not a wishful thinking. And that's one of the mistakes we make when we think about hope, talk about hope. When we hear the word hope as Christians, we almost connote it with just wishful thinking. I wish this would happen. I wish the Cowboys would have won. That is definitely wishful thinking. See, hope's not the same thing. Hope has an assurance built into it. It's it's not a wish. It's a belief. It's an extension of faith. It's not, gee, I wish things would improve. I wish I could be a better Christian. I wish I had more power in my life. I wish I knew Jesus was going to come back someday. I wish I knew I was going to survive this particular trial. No, we should live with hope. Hope is something completely different. It is not wishful thinking. Look at Hebrews 11.1, that great hall of faith. It begins with this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's an assurance. It's a conviction. It's not, gee, I wish this might happen. I wish I could trust that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is, and he's going to one day come back and rectify all of this. No, it's an assurance that what I hope for is going to happen. See, it would have been completely different Sunday night if I had hoped for the Cowboys to win, knowing that it was going to happen. But see, I don't, I don't have that kind of hope in the Cowboys. I lost that years ago. Um, my, my son, who's, who's a junior at Harvard, he was watching the game and up in Cambridge, and we were texting back and forth, and he kept saying, Dad, you're such a naysayer. You're so, you're so negative. And I'm like, I've got 20 years of proof 
for my negativity. Okay, I've watched this for two decades now. I had no hope in the Cowboys. I wished they might pull it out, but they didn't. See, this is a completely different thing. I love the way the New Living Translation translates that same verse. Listen to what it says. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. In other words, we're, we're so confident in our faith that it shows up in the way we hope the things that we believe in, the things that we trust in, the things that we await and we know what's going to happen. You know, he goes on in chapter 11 of Hebrews and he talks about all those patriarchs and we mentioned this last week, Abram and Noah and Moses and Rahab and all these Old Testament saints who were waiting for something that they never saw. They were confident. They kept going. You know, I told you last week, I'm, I'm... working my way through the book of Genesis right now, and I blog on it every morning, and I post it online for others to read, and one of the things that keeps jumping out at me is I'm, I'm in the life of Abram, and I'm chapter 15, and Abram, we're told, was called faithful and righteous because he believed God, and yet if you track his life after that statement was made about him, he doubted, he came up with his own plans. He took his wife's advice, and because she was barren, he had sex with her handmaid, and she bore a son. All because he believed that God was going to bring about the promise. He just wasn't convinced how. So he thought, I better help God out. And I've always loved that part of the story when, when Sarah comes to Abram, and she goes, hey, you're old, I'm old, I'm barren, why don't you go into my handmaid and have sex with her? And you notice, he, he never argues with her. He doesn't go, oh, honey, that's a bad idea. No, honey, there's no way. He's just like, all right, wonderful idea, Sarah. But it wasn't God's idea. But he continued to hope in the promise. He just didn't always... He wasn't always convinced how God was going to pull this off. How was God going to do it? And that's why it's not wishful thinking. It's a belief in the promises of God. That's what this is all about. That's why these people are suffering, and Peter's writing them to get them to understand is the sufferings part and parcel of your walk with him on this planet. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be upset by it. As a matter of fact, he's going to say rejoice in it. I know you're enough like me that you don't wake up waiting and praying for God to bring suffering so that you might rejoice. But that's exactly what he teaches, is that we should enter into every day with this living hope that God's going to bring something good out of the bad in our lives. So He's going to bring something good out of all that we go through. Last week in your discussion time, I had you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul refers to this momentary light affliction. It jumped out at me last week, and and just looking at at that verse one more time, it's singular. It, It doesn't say momentary light affliction. See, what we do is we take that passage and we think, okay, what are my momentary light afflictions? Well, I've got um, a bad back. Uh, 
my marriage isn't going great right now, or my job's kind of dicey, or my finances are not where they need to be. I've got these momentary light afflictions, but the passage is singular. And I think what Paul's saying is that this life is a momentary light affliction. It's not what happens to you in this life. It's the fact that you're living as an alien and stranger here when where you really belong is somewhere else. Your whole life is a momentary light affliction until Jesus Christ comes again, until it's all fulfilled. And you may go, well, that's a negative way of looking at life. But if you've lived very long, you realize that it is a momentary light affliction because you don't belong here. It'd be like trying to live on the moon. We could do it, right? We have the technology, but it would be highly uncomfortable to every day have to put on a heavy suit that protects you from the rays of the sun, to wear an oxygen source because you can't breathe the air, to deal with that environment because it's not normal and natural for you. It would be a momentary light affliction. For as long as you had to stay on the moon, it would all be a momentary light affliction until you could return to where you truly belong. That's the message of 1 Peter. So this evidence, this proof that should appear in our lives as we focus on the hereafter and the promise, it's all about belief. It's all believing in what God has said he's going to do. Our belief in what God has promised shows up or should show up in the way we live our lives. And that includes the good times and the bad times, the stuff you love and the stuff you hate. It should all bring evidence of your faith, whether it's, again, a prognosis of cancer from the doctor, the loss of your job, a child who rebels, whatever it may be, we should live in those circumstances as those who have hope, living hope, active hope. See, here, here's what jumps out at me in First Peter. Confidence, belief in the promises of God will produce conviction. What do I mean by that? It means that the, the more I believe and trust in God and the more I see him active in my life through the good, the bad, and the ugly, the more I will be convicted that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. It, it's a conviction of not a conviction of sin. That's how we normally think of conviction. But I'm, I'm convicted that my God truly is sovereign, that he truly is in control regardless of what is happening around me. And that conviction produces compliance, a, a willingness to obey God in spite of what's going on around me. And, and it's, you're free to say, God, I don't particularly like this, and God can handle that, but you know what? He's going to still continue to allow that to happen in your life as you grow more and more obedient to what he would have you do. Not coming up with your plan B, plan C, plan D like Abram did, but no, Lord, I'm going to let you do it the way you've planned to do it because your plan's always better than my plan. So conviction produces compliance. And here's the sad reality. As you become more compliant, more obedient to God, you will face conflict. And if you aren't facing conflict, it's probably because you're not quite as obedient as you need to be. We need to learn to obey God and know that when we obey God, we're going to face conflict with the world. It's interesting that the enemy rarely attacks those who lack conviction. 
He attacks those who are serious in their faith, those who are serious about their walk with God, those who really want to grow are the ones he attacks. Those who are already complacent, apathetic, he has no reason to bother them. But those who are serious about their faith, he attacks them with a vengeance, just like he attacked Jesus because he knows he's got to stop them from growing in their knowledge of God and their relationship with Jesus Christ. And that conflict that comes into our lives because of our obedience always results in suffering. These people living in those five northern regions of Asia Minor in the first century were suffering, and they were suffering because of their faith in Christ, because they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they were trying to live in obedience to the commands of God the Father. And guess what? Suffering produces sanctification. If I were God, I'd have done this differently, okay? Lucky for you, I'm not God. This is the way God works. God produces in our lives sanctification, increasing holiness through suffering. And you know it's true. If we could all sit down and share a testimony about our life, we would all be able to say, I've grown most during times of suffering than any other time in my life as I've had to become more dependent on God, as I've realized my own weakness and how I need His power in my life. See, suffering produces sanctification. That's the way this works, and that's what he's trying to get these people to understand. Look at James 1, 3, and 4. For you know that when your faith is tested, and your faith is tested every day, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, mature, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. See, that's the goal. That's the objective. Will you ever be fully complete and mature in this life? No. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 are are the two key verses for this church. They were the founding verses of this church, that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Will we ever accomplish that in this life? No. It will be done when Jesus Christ returns or when he takes you home. But it's our goal. It's our objective. It's the mission that we have as a church, and here's James saying the same thing, that your endurance, when it's fully complete, when all is said and done, when God is done with this grand plan of redemption, you will be perfect and incomplete, lacking nothing. So that's what Peter's telling these suffering believers, and that's what he's telling you and I by extension. See, we've been called to be born again, to be made new to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What's he he telling them? Hey, guys, I know you're suffering, and I know things are difficult right now, but guess what? God's got a plan, and God's working that plan, and that plan is perfect, and it will work itself out in perfect timing. And you can hope in it. You can have a living, active hope in that plan because it's the promise of God. It's based on him. See, he talks about this inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's something we can count on. That's exactly what God told Abram early on when he called Abram. In chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and you will be a blessing to all the other nations. Here's the problem. He's already old. His wife's barren, and yet God has said, I'm going to give you an inheritance. 
an inheritance so great, and he goes on later in chapter 15, he says, I'm going to give you so many descendants that if you look up in the sky and count the stars, you'll never get close to the number. If you count the sand on the seashore, you'll never be able to count the number of descendants I'm going to get you. And he keeps looking at himself, looking at his wife. They're both old. She's barren. And he goes, okay, not sure how you're going to do this. I've got a couple of ideas that I think might help. But see, God knew what he was doing. He's got this inheritance, and it's, it's kept in heaven. Now, when we did the last series on the kingdom of God, we, we dealt with this, this passage. What does it mean that our inheritance is kept in heaven? What, what's he trying to tell them, and what's he trying to tell us? He says, it's being kept in heaven for you, for me, for all of us in this room, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice how he, he keeps pointing them to the future, the hereafter, what's to come. So what's he saying? Where is this place, this thing, this inheritance? Where is it? What is it? Is it heaven? Is our home heaven? Now, I don't know what denomination you may have grown up in, but I grew up in a denomination where I constantly heard that heaven is my home. That's where I'm going when I die. And it's true that if I die right now, I go to heaven. Just as Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. If I died right now, hold your applause, I would go to be with him. I would go to heaven. But heaven is not my home. Heaven is not our permanent dwelling place. It's a temporary place. See, that's, that's exactly what's going on here. So that song that I referenced last week, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, is not telling me that heaven is where I go and heaven is where I stay. And that's really important for us to understand because heaven is a wonderful place. Heaven is where my mom and dad are right now enjoying the presence of God the Father and God the Son, perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, and yet that's not their permanent home. That's not where they will remain. And it's, if, if I go, if you go in the next day or next week, it's not where you, you will remain. So what's Peter telling these people? Look at this in Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Well, Ken, this seems to just contradict what you just said. Jesus seems to be saying that heaven is where our treasure is. But he's not saying that, that heaven is our home. He's saying your hope what is of true value is in heaven. God's got something for us. And it's not a place called heaven. It's something in heaven that he's going to bring. And it's, it's what, what he means by treasure. See, when I think treasure, I think stuff. I, I think the stuff I own, the stuff I bought, the stuff I like, the stuff I hoard, the stuff I don't want my wife throwing away, it's, that's my treasure. My wife loves to purge our closet, and she'll throw away my favorite T-shirts. And I'm like, where are my T-shirts? 
I threw them away. Why? Because they were old. Those were my T-shirts. I like those T-shirts. They have memories. I like those T-shirts. Why would you throw them away? Because they were old. They were taking up space. See, I have treasure. She has treasure. I would never walk into her closet and throw away anything because I probably wouldn't have a marriage anymore. See, treasure we think of as stuff, but God's got something far more important than stuff for us. That's why Jesus talks about this. It's not storing up security here on heaven. It's placing my hope and my security in what God has ready for me and one day will reveal to me. And it's in the future. See, heaven exists right now. This thing that God has reserved for me has not yet come, and it is the future reward that Peter's talking about. And I think that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So what is this treasure? What is this thing to which we are to place our hope, our active living hope? Well, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Well, again, Ken, you seem to be contradicting yourself. Here Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of heaven? Is it an ethereal place where we go upon death? Is that where we stay? Is that our permanent home? Is that where we all will go and stay and live with God? Well, according to the scriptures, no, it's not. And this may come as a shock to you. Jesus goes on and says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. What's happening to the people living in those northern regions of Asia Minor? All that. What happens to many of us because of our faith in Christ? All that. But what does he say? Be happy about it. What? See, that made no more sense to the people sitting on that hillside when Jesus preached this sermon than it does to you and I right now. Be happy about when people mock me, persecute me, lie about me, say all sorts of evil things against me because I'm a Christ follower? Yes, rejoice in that. Be very glad for, because, a great reward awaits you in heaven. Now again, is heaven the reward? Is where my mom and dad the reward? Where your loved ones who have gone on before you, is that the reward? Well, again, according to Scripture, no. It's a temporary holding place. Let's fast forward all the way to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, to one of the last chapters in the last book of the Bible. This is that incredible vision given to John by Jesus Christ about the end. When everything comes to a close, the very end that Peter is telling these people about. Listen to what it says. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. What you may not realize, guys, is that this, all that we experience in this life is going to go away. This place is broken. This place is, has been cursed. This place has been damaged because of the, because of the fall. And God's going to remake it, renew it, recreate it. A new heaven, a new earth, because the first earth has passed away. The sea was no more. And catch this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
See, when my mom and dad both died, they went to be with God. This is telling us when God will come to be with us in the new Jerusalem. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All the old, all the damaged will be done away with. God will remake the heavens and the earth and he will, he will send down this city that he has already completed It's unoccupied, and he's going to bring it down for all of his children to live in with him for eternity. This is after the millennial kingdom. This is where we will live, and he will live with us. This is the treasure. This is the hope. See, the fact that my mom and dad have gone to be with the Lord, and some of your loved ones have gone to be with the Lord, is wonderful and great, but if this doesn't happen, there's no culmination to the story. There's there's no hope. The fact that Abram lived in the land of promise was not the end of the story. There was going to be 400 years where his descendants lived in Egypt. See, God wasn't done yet. God's not done yet now. God's not done with my mom and dad. God's not done with every saint who's gone on before us. See, God's got, got a plan, and he's going to work that plan to perfection. And that's why Peter can tell them, you are being protected to a salvation ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. See, the salvation is that day we step into that heavenly city that has come down to earth and live with God forever. That's the salvation. The fact that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ is great, but that's the beginning of salvation, not the beginning and the end. Salvation is the whole scope of stepping into the kingdom through faith, living in the kingdom through faith here on this earth, and ultimately living in the kingdom in reality when all is said and done, when God finalizes his incredible plan. That's why it says, in this you rejoice. See, that's why rejoicing in the midst of trials makes sense if you keep your eye focused on the goal, the end, the prize. In this, in what? In this incredible plan of God, this promise of God about this coming treasure in the form of the kingdom of God in the heavenly city of God, In this you rejoice, though, in spite of the fact that for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And guess what? They're grieved by various trials. That's the whole reason he's written the letter. They're suffering. They're they're facing persecution. They've probably lost their jobs. They've been ostracized by their own families. But then he tells them there's a method to God's madness. We, we know these people are, are doing exactly what we do when we face trials. They're saying, why me? Why now? Why am I having to go through this? I thought I was going to get the abundant life. John 10, 10. This doesn't seem to fit. And he's saying, no, it really does because it produces what? Faith. Further faith, greater faith, and endurance. He says, You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, 
does what? That perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can test gold and purify gold and find out what's dross and what's real, what's pure and what's impure, what's of value and what's of non-value, but guess what? Gold, like everything else in this planet, is going to go away. It's not eternal, but you are. And he says that when you're tested by trials, it produces in you a greater faith. It, it proves the genuineness of your faith. You've probably heard that, that analogy that, you know, you don't know what's in a tube of toothpaste until you squeeze it, right? When you get squeezed, it reveals how genuine and real and pure your faith really is. And some of us, when we get squeezed by trials, by suffering, by tests, it doesn't reveal the proper faith. We're a little doubtful. We're, we're a little unsure about these hopes that God has given us. But that's why it tests us so that we might know, what state is my faith in? You know, my, my, my son's going to Harvard right now, and, and like every other university on this planet, maybe not as much as they used to, they give tests. It seems like tests are becoming anathema right now, that we, we don't want to be unfair and test everybody, so we're just going to do away with tests. But he still has to take tests. What's the purpose of a test? To prove what you know. It's, it's not for the teacher's sake. It's for your sake. So when you take that test, the teacher is supposedly testing you on everything that you've learned to see if you've really learned it. And that's what God does. He brings trials into our life in order to see, for our benefit, do I really trust him? Do I really believe? When that test reveals that, you know what, I've really doubted. I really haven't believed. I really don't think he's a good God. I really don't think he's going to deliver on the goods. It reveals to you the impurity of your faith, the weakness of your faith, so that you might grow in faith, so that your faith might become greater in him, not in you, not in this world. It tests the genuineness that's why he says various trials, trials of all kind, big ones, small ones, they all end up producing the same thing. See, the here and now in which you and I live comes with tests, trials, difficulties, heartaches, things that we don't like, things that we would rather avoid, things that we try to run from, things that we oftentimes try to pray ourselves out of. And we wonder, why haven't I prayed myself out of this? Am I not praying hard enough, long enough? Is God unhappy with me? Is God not listening to me? No, God may very well want to leave you in that trial so that you will learn to trust him in the midst of the trial. See, I've always believed that your greatest testimony is not after you've been delivered from the trial, it's in the midst of it. When, when you're going through a difficult marriage, but you're hanging in and you're trusting God and you're doing everything you can to preserve that marriage, your testimony is so powerful to others going through the same thing. But if you're on the other side of that equation and you're talking about, boy, God delivered me and he healed my marriage and everything's great and hunky-dory now and what was bad is now wonderful, the other guy who's going through a rough marriage can't relate to that. See, he wants to know, okay, you're telling me your marriage is not doing well, but you still trust God? How are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Our greatest testimony is in the midst of trials, not afterwards. See, we've got to put our hope in the hereafter. That's the caveat. That's the condition. 
we got to always keep our mind on what God has because the trials come now, the treasure comes later. We want it just the opposite. I want the treasures now. I don't want the trials at all. And yet here are these people suffering through trials, suffering through difficulties, and here's Peter telling them, guess what, guys? The trials are part of the process. The treasure will come. The treasure will come. It will come later. And that's not to say that God doesn't bless you and bless me right here, right now, but the greatest blessing is to come. That's why Paul writes in Romans, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. It's a living hope. It's an active hope. It's a hope based on conviction, assurance. It will happen. That's what he wants them to know. That's what he wants you and I to know. It will not disappoint. We may have pain. We may have suffering. We, we may have things happen and we don't understand them and we don't like them. But guess what? When this is all finished, when God completes his plan, you will not be disappointed by your faith in him. And I love how he, he, he now, in verse 8, focuses on, in on their relationship with Jesus Christ because that's been the impetus for their problems. They believed in Jesus and now they're suffering. He says, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. These people had never seen Jesus. Jesus had been long gone before they came to faith. But he says, you love him. You don't see him now, yet you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How come it is that you can rejoice in Jesus whom you've never seen and place your faith in a man you've never seen and have joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, but you, you, you are having a hard time receiving the concept that there's a great reward awaiting you. It's going to descend out of heaven. You're going to spend eternity with God the Father and God the Son. Why is it you can't see that when you, you can't see Jesus, but you love him and believe in him, but you can't seem to wrap your arms around everything else? You love him. You believe in him. You rejoice over it. But then he goes on, it all points to the obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, guys, I know I'm in Christ. I'm a new creature. I have a new nature, but I live in the here and now. And everything is not hunky-dory. I don't always live the way I should live. I don't always believe like I should believe. But I hope in what? The future salvation of my soul when this salvation plan of God is fully completed. When I go from placing my faith in Christ through this period of sanctification that takes place for however long I'm going to be on this planet, however long God allows me to live, till when I am finally glorified. That's the end of the salvation process when I'm glorified and I experience the salvation of my soul, the complete, full plan of God for my salvation. See, that's why we can go through this momentary light affliction called life knowing that there's eternal life to come. And I can endure the trials and I can even rejoice in the trials because I know they're producing me greater faith and greater hope in what's to come. I can endure this because I know where I'm going. So he says, concerning this salvation, what salvation? This culmination to God's redemptive plan, your glorification, 
Concerning this, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, and they searched and inquired carefully. He starts talking about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, how they predicted and prophesied about this very hope of salvation and ultimate glorification, the salvation of my soul. See, that's the outcome. When God finishes the process, the word soul here is suke in the Greek, and it, it refers to basically the essence of life, that in which there is life. It's, it's the breath of life. It's not to be separated necessarily from the body. In other words, there's the soul and the body. We're, we're, we're not bifurcated in that way. It, it's, I got a fallen body, and I'm, I'm reminded of it every day. I've got a decaying body, and one day this body is going to cease, and it will turn to dust, but I'm going to get a new one. See, we are not bodiless creatures living in eternity. We will have a new, redeemed, glorified body, and we will have our soul living in that body. We will be a complete, holistic being the way we were created to be. And that's the hope here, the culmination of it all, the salvation of your soul, your entire life, when you, body, soul, mind, and spirit will be made whole and complete, and you will spend eternity with the Lord. Thomas Constable, I gave you... uh, that handout last week of his study notes. Here's what he says. Ultimately, we will obtain the salvation of our souls, glorification, though not necessarily exemption from physical suffering and death now. See, what we struggle with is I want, I want glorification now. I want that perfect body, healthy body now. I want pain-free life now. I want a trouble-free life now. I, in essence, want heaven now, but heaven comes later. The 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 kingdom comes later. The, the city of God comes later. Right now, I will suffer. I will go through ongoing decay. I can try to slow it down, but I'm not very good at it. But I have the future hope of glorification. That's the salvation he's talking about. Concerning this salvation, that's what the prophets wrote about. The prophets, whether they knew it or not, and they didn't know it, were writing about things they didn't understand. They were writing about the future, and they searched, and they inquired carefully, Peter says. They were desperate to understand the stuff that the Holy Spirit was having them write, and they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Listen, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was talking about. This salvation they were writing about, prophesying about, they didn't fully understand. God didn't give them the understanding. He gave them the words. And so they inquired, they searched, they wanted to know what were they writing about when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Don't miss this. What did all of the prophets write about? Isaiah in particular that Jesus Christ was going to be the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he was going to come and redeem and rule and reign, but he also was going to suffer and die. Go read Isaiah chapter 53. And what the prophets looked at is they go, man, this doesn't seem to fit. Conquering Savior, Messiah, and suffering servant. And so as the centuries passed, they began to ignore the suffering servant passages and just concentrate on what? the conquering king, the savior, the the second David. And yet, Peter's pointing out that what these guys prophesied about was both ends of the spectrum. Suffering servant, conquering king. See, the spirit of Christ spoke through these men 
and predicted the sufferings of Christ as well as the glories of Christ. And even we don't like to think about the sufferings. We prefer Easter, but we prefer Easter Resurrection Sunday to Friday. We don't like the cross. We don't like the tomb. We don't like the death of Christ, but we love the resurrection. But guess what? You don't get one without the other. Had he not suffered and died, there would be no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope, Peter, Paul says. See, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we get it all. That's part of the process. So th- these prophets, inspired by the Spirit of God, were predicting the twofold nature of Jesus' mission. And, and virtually every Jew missed it. Even during Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all those religious leaders of Israel missed the second part of the equation. See, he was going to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but also the lion. They preferred the lion. They preferred the conquering king. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus because he didn't look like a lion. He didn't look like a king. He looked meek and mild, and yet he had to be both. See, the cross has to become, had to come before the crown. If that's true of Jesus, is it not true of you and I? Are we somehow better than Jesus, that he had to suffer and die and then be glorified? Why do we think we, we shouldn't have to go through any kind of suffering? But we do. See, for Jesus, humiliation came before his glorification. Guess what? I don't know if you realize it or not, but life on this planet can be humiliating. Life as a Christian on this planet can be incredibly humiliating because we're aliens, we're strangers, we don't fit in. This is not our home. See, I love Philippians 2. It's my favorite chapter in the entire Scriptures. And listen to what it says about Jesus' humiliation. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh, came to earth, lived a sinless life, and then suffered a humiliating death on the cross. He humbled himself all the way to the point of death. But then it goes on and says, Therefore, because of that, God elevated him to to the highest of honors and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, he is and will be glorified. Is this true right now? Is every knee bowing to Jesus Christ? Is every tongue glorifying Jesus Christ as Lord? No. But the day will come when they do. Whether they want to, they will. Whether they believe in him, they will. Because God's going to complete the cycle, humiliation, glorification. And the same thing's true of us. We are in a period of humiliation, suffering, trials, but we look forward to our glorification. So it was revealed to these men that they didn't understand. They were simply writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and they were writing about things that weren't going to benefit them in their day, but they definitely benefit us. They benefit us by telling us that God has a full plan in place. And he says, it's been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels don't fully understand the complete plan of God. 
but we do because, what well, we have the Scripture of God. So how does he end this thing? Look at what he says in verse 13, and this is the kind of the hinge verse for what we're going to look at next week. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, get your eye off the here and now and start thinking about the hereafter. Think about the promises of God. Put your hope in your true treasure. So he says, therefore, what does that mean? You may, have, you may have heard somebody say, when you're studying the Scripture and you see the word therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. What's the purpose of that transitional word in the Greek? Well, he says, therefore, based on something, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. So with all this in mind, that's basically what he's saying. With all this in mind, since God has, and let's go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1, has elected you, chosen you, determined you, has, has caused you to be born again, verse 3, since God is preserving your inheritance, that kingdom, that heavenly city, verse 4, he's guarding you in the meantime, verse 5, and testing and perfecting you, verses 6 and 7, and he sent his son to die for you and suffer on your behalf, verse 11. With all that in mind, guess what? Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Put all your active, living, vibrant, assured hope in that. That's how you survive this. When you truly believe in and hope in the hereafter, the here and now can not only be survivable, but thrivable. You will grow. You will prosper. So here's your questions for this morning. I want you to go and read Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. We looked at chapter 2, but look at what he says in chapter 3 in those two verses. It's a really strange statement. I've always struggled with it because he talks about that he might enjoy the sufferings of Christ. It's a strange mindset, but is it unique to Paul or should it be true of all of us? Should we embrace the suffering of Christ as Paul did? And I think the answer is yes, but do we and why should we? Secondly, Peter's encouraging his readers to rejoice in the midst of suffering, but based on what? What's that caveat and why is that important for you and I? What's the thing we should focus on as we go through this life on this earth? And finally, what are some ways God has used suffering to produce sanctification in your life? Share how God has grown you through trials, through tribulations. And may, maybe he's doing it right now. Remember, your greatest testimony is in the midst of the trial, not after you're delivered. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for this opportunity to come together. But thank you more than anything else for your word that is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts to the quick. It does surgery on our hearts and lives and reveals to us those areas of our lives where maybe we need some healing, where we need some hope. And Father, every one of us struggle, every one of us doubt, every one of us has fears, every one of us hates trials and sufferings, but would you show us that we can have a living, active hope because your word, your promises are true and you will do everything that you've said you will do. And that, Father, we have 
a rich reward awaiting us. And we look forward to it. And in the meantime, help us to rejoice even in the midst of trials, these momentary afflictions or affliction of just life as we wait the final fulfillment of your promise. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.